If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. If you were to picture the Middle Ages, what would you see? Warlike knights charging across battlefields, muddy medieval peasants confined to their villages. Overall, something that would seem rather unchanging and uncivilised. Well, according to historian and author Ian Mortimer, this isn't quite the real Middle Ages. In his new book, Medieval Horizons, Ian explores how society's understanding of the world expanded dramatically between 1000 and 1600, completely transforming everyday life. Emily Briffitt spoke to him to find out more. Hi, Ian. It's a real pleasure to be chatting to you today. Thank you very much for asking me to come along. So the medieval period is one that has been shrouded in myth and popular perceptions that might not always present us with the entire picture. So before we dive in too deep, I think it's really important to unpick some of these preconceptions first. Within your work as a historian, what are some of the most common preconceptions or misconceptions you've come up against about the Middle Ages? The bête noir, the, the real big problem, is the assumption, the conviction, the belief throughout society, and I include historians in that, that technology is the fundamental activator and benchmark of change. 
Um, we all know that the public sort of assumes that um, technology equals change. We look at our, our mobile phones. A, a few years ago, um, I did a talk to celebrate 1,100 years of the Diocese of Exeter. And I said to a friend of mine who I knew had uh, grown up in Cornwall, um, I'm going to be talking about the biggest changes of the last 1,100 years. Uh, why don't you come along and listen to me? And he got his mobile phone out of his pocket and he looked at it. He said, I could phone my brother in Australia right now and you can't tell me that any change is bigger than that. To which I pointed out, of course, that um, telephones are a 19th century invention and the mobiles are a 20th century invention, admittedly. Um, Australia was discovered several hundred years ago. But where he grew up, Cornwall, wasn't even part of England 1,100 years ago. His obsession with change was a conviction that technology is change. And when you add that to things like Marcellus Wallace and the film Pulp Fiction saying, I'm going to get medieval on your ass... And then realising that the Oxford English Dictionary quotes that very phrase, getting medieval as backward and cruel, you realise that we have a real problem in educating people about the real meaning of the Middle Ages. I mean, this, this, this problem with technology affects not just the Middle Ages, but it's, it's particularly bad for the Middle Ages. Do you think then we get maybe distracted by the last 500 years and the change that's happened then and not actually look into the Middle Ages as a time of change? I think we're distracted by the last 250 years since the Industrial Revolution. And the technology there, look back 300 years ago, people still see England of the early 18th century as perhaps you know, the residual bit of uh, medieval England, the wealth in society that had come from a feudal society. They see that as being very different from now, and therefore they see that as backwards. The attitudes to slavery, uh, they look at the slavery of that period and have a reaction to it. Of course, they forget that the whole of this country had slavery until the 12th century, and we were all descended from slaves and slave owners, as I keep on telling people. In Devon, where I live, 20% of the whole population was enslaved, and about 70% were serfs. They were unfree peasants on the land. They could, didn't have a choice of where they were going to go or what they were going to do. So we, we do get blinded by the last 250 years. Um, when people think about Shakespeare as being old-fashioned, even though so clearly he speaks for us in so many respects, then we are blinkering ourselves. So the last 250 years in so, so many ways uh, are, are, are a bit of a problem. And the further you go back, the nearer you go back to the 11th century, the, the bigger that problem gets. Why do you think we associate the word medieval then with this sort of unchanging, uncivilised and probably muddy society? <laughs> I read an article once, it's funny you should say muddy, they said there are two popular views of the Middle Ages. One is that everything was like habitat and made of bare wood with clean linen and white linen. And the other one is that it was all like Monty Python and there's some lovely mud down here. You know, it's... And it wasn't like that. Neither, neither of those is uh, accurate. Um, why do we think it's so cruel and barbarous? Well, I suppose we have this sort of general assumption that things have always got better, that there has always been um, a general sense of progress. And when people look at 16th century torture implements, they immediately think something before that must have been even worse. Whereas 
in reality, torture and the cruel implements of uh, barbarity that we can see in some European museums today, and we can read about for Elizabethan England, are products of the 16th century. We've got to remember in medieval England, torture was not allowed. It was against the law. Um, Edward II had to get special dispensation to torture the Templars in 1308, and he only did it because his father-in-law, the King of France, insisted that he do it. We didn't, on the whole, torture people in the, the name of the state. Some uh, individual sheriffs and uh, lords took the law into their own hands and an exception to that, but there wasn't a legalised sense of torture. That came in in Elizabethan times. But because of this sense of progress, that it must have been worse in medieval times than Elizabethan times, people just think it's backward. And progress is probably the main culprit. And again, where do our ideas of progress come from? And they really come from the French Revolution and the Marquis de Condorcet's ideas about progress in the 1790s. So again, it's the last 200 years that are a problem in seeing medieval England uh, clearly. In your book, you use the term the many Middle Ages. Can you explain exactly what you mean by this? If you think in terms of uh, standard of living for those at the bottom of society, in the early 11th century, you'd have pretty much seen famine every four years. Very large proportions of people would have been living below the breadline by most people's standards, unable to afford anything other than the, the ability to stay alive, more desperate for more land than they were for their own freedom. And that's a crucial point. You know, they'd rather remain unfree and have a little bit more land in order to struggle to survive and feed their families. And if they were free and could sell their own children into slavery and they had so many children, they may well do so for the sake of the benefit of that child and the benefit of the rest of their children. That's a very different society from the 15th century, where the population um, was much better fed, where you could import uh, surpluses from Europe of grain when necessary, when there were commodities. After the Black Death, people had a far higher standard of living because all the assets of the country were divided between many fewer people. So there are real distinctions to be made in the Middle Ages. And you can't really compare the, 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 the standards of living of the 11th century with those of the 15th. I mean, the, the standard of living for a reasonably prosperous townsman in about 1470 was as high as it was going to be for that class of people until the 19th century and the later stages of the Industrial Revolution, so the 1860s, 1870s. Um, it's Really quite shocking how, how bad things were at times in the Middle Ages for, for those at the bottom of society. So there are these various times. There are these periods of experience which can't be compared with others in the Middle Ages. Can we really compare what we know to what the people of the Middle Ages knew in the terms of our wealth of knowledge versus maybe their wealth of knowledge? People today, they assume they did not have a wealth of knowledge. I was chatting to a friend the other day, and I mentioned it in the book, in fact, because it was so such a, a springboard for realisation. Uh, and this is somebody who has, you know, he's got a literary degree, he's got a history degree, um, he's not uninformed at all. But he said in the course of conversation, of course, the average school child today leaves school knowing more about the world than the greatest scientists of the 16th century. And I thought, you've really summed up in that one phrase, how we... Even educated people misunderstand the past because we, I, you know, I don't know when to sow winter wheat. I personally can't ride a horse. Um, I don't know how to store apples so they last 18 months. Um, all sorts of areas of general knowledge that they would have just taken for granted 
We've completely forgotten they ever knew. The herbs, the, the names of um, animals, um, when it comes to how to fight it with a sword, you know, how to defend yourself. I mean, the, the, a lot of these things are no longer general knowledge. And then when you go and step inside a cathedral and you, you look up and you just see the sophistication of people building in the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries and realise that they didn't even have a standardised language. They didn't even have, uh, you know, they didn't have standardised units of measurement and yet what they created without mechanical uh, en- uh, engineering has lasted 800 years and looks as beautiful as it probably did the day it was put up, albeit without the paint. Then you realise there's just a wealth of knowledge we don't do. How do you build something like... Uh, uh, Le Mans Cathedral with uh, a, a crossing over 100 feet high. Well, no school child could do that today. And in fact, without the, the professional background, no trained engineer could do it. You'd need engineering, you would need calculation, you would need computers, because we've lost the ability to do it without these tools. So there's a wealth of knowledge that they had that we simply don't appreciate they had in the first place. How formative would you say the Middle Ages were in the making of the world we have today? Apart from technology, entirely so. In fact, I don't think much has happened apart from technology since the last, uh, well, since the, the 17th century and the scientific revolution. Most change today and over the years has been rooted in technology. And although I know a lot of people and any good historians would immediately jump up and say, what about women's rights? What about social rights? A lot of the root causes for, for there to be these rights are rooted in the technological changes um, that, that took place in the, in the distant past. Now, uh, the Industrial Revolution in the 18th century is where we look at most of that technology coming from. But if you include the Agricultural Revolution that preceded it, which allows the food supply to support the workers who created the Industrial Revolution... Well, if that's technology too, then it is largely technology that has changed the modern world. Until that point, yeah, the the medieval period was where we see a world which was riven by fighting and war transition to one which was able to expect peace and to look at war as being unusual. And one where we did not know what lay beyond the, the Sahara to one where we would go there and actually bring things back from it and exploit its wealth. The Middle Ages transformed our understanding of the world, transformed our understanding of ourselves, introduced our ideas so that it could be our fellow human beings that supported ourselves in this world rather than relying on gods. It was utterly transformative. In fact, it's very little to see that is modern, which does not have a root in the medieval world. So there's plenty of things that you've spoken about there that I'd really like to talk about. Now, the title of your book is Medieval Horizons. Mm -hmm. And I think when we talk about horizons, the natural draw is to talk about geographical horizons. It's the obvious one, yeah. So let's start there then. How did society's understanding of the world around them shift in the Middle Ages? How far do you want to look? If you just imagine the horizons of um, somebody, uh, well, living here where I am in Devon, um, at the time of doomsday, which is after the the beginning, the book really starts with the early 11th century. So we're already looking well into that period when doomsday records in the manner of Morton 
which became Morton Hampstead. Um, there were 28 uh, people here, some of whom were villains, some of whom were slaves, some of whom were impoverished boarders. But they would have been living in houses that were um, low. Uh, here they would have been turf-walled and probably with a, a thatching, uh, which could have been a reed, but may more probably was renewed every year and was just basically bracken. Their houses were squat extensions of hovels in the landscape. By the end of the Middle Ages, you have three-storey houses of stone being built here with windows, fireplaces. So your immediate horizon, that geographical surrounding, would have changed. How far would they have travelled? Well, they wouldn't have had the right to, to leave the manor in the 11th century. They'd been required here to produce food for the Lord, um, and that was the Sheriff of Devon at the time. The ability to leave the manor, to go to a market, is something that develops in the 11th century. We take it for granted that a free person can go where they want, but not if you're required to work the land all the time. We take it for granted that you can choose who you marry, but not if you have to marry somebody from the same manor, because the, your progeny have to be kept on the manor to, to farm the land. So the, those horizons are those that expand. But then the wider horizon how far do you know your way around the world? Well, if you look at the, the trading records for London, we can see people from Northern Europe and from Scandinavia coming into London to trade in the 11th century. And of course, we know the Vikings went all over Europe and uh, into Russia. But by the 16th century, we discovered pretty much all of the world apart from Australia and New Zealand and a few far-flung corners of the Pacific, etc. We were trading across the world. You would have a cup made of a coconut in the 15th century. You would buy spices in a market that uh, come from the Moluccas in the Pacific. You know, the, the whole frontier, every form of horizon had been expanded from the, the very, very narrow, what you see, to the furthest, how far you know. And of course, in terms of the stars, Tycho Brahe and uh, other uh, Leonard Diggs, Thomas Diggs, astronomers like that, they were counting more and more stars uh, in, in the heavens, paving the way for, for the scientific revolution of the 17th century. So in every geographical respect, we see threshold after threshold, horizon after horizon expanded. So thresholds passed, horizons expanded um, in every way. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. 
Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange-traded funds with GlobalX ETFs. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. GlobalX specializes in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. Some of these geographical explorations might seem quite far-flung. How far would they have affected an individual medieval person living on a manor in Devon? In terms of uh, European fighting, an awful lot of people, larger and larger armies, got taken to the continent or taken around. So there would have been a horizon of how far people travelled because of political horizons expanding. If you become part of the Angevin Empire, as we did in the uh, in the 12th century, then obviously you could find yourself going much further away from home than you would have otherwise. As wealth increases, as trade increases, as market increases, uh, markets increase, especially in the 13th century, people's prosperity means they want to drink wine, which generally has to be imported from France, so therefore you need to go to Bordeaux to bring it all back with the wine fleet. The constant demand for silver in Europe from the trades with especially Arabic countries and uh, the Moors meant there was a this need for silver, so large amounts of silver have to come back from South America. In Devon, of course, we have the sea on north and south, so therefore the opportunities of raiding those fleets, the silver fleets, uh, when they weren't ours, become very, very attractive. You know, no one knows really how much Drake brought back from his circumnavigation in 1577 to 1580, and he gave a large portion of it to the Queen, which is why she reluctantly made him a, a knight. But the, the opportunities over the, this period for ordinary people... And remember, Drake just was you know, a, a bloke born on a farm near Tavistock. He was nobody special. The opportunities uh, were extraordinary. But also, you might feel inspired to go and visit Jerusalem. You know, in the year 1000, very, very few people went on long-distance pilgrimages. A few did, and that is why the, the, the Templars were set up to, to protect the, the, the pilgrims to Jerusalem. But by the, the, the 12th century, the whole idea of pilgrimage, whether it be to Jerusalem, Santiago de Compostela, Rome, or, let's face it, after Beckett was dead, Canterbury, now these things are really attractive. It's a holiday away from home, you meet other people, and you get to uh, redeem yourself, perhaps have some divine blessing on an injury. So there's everything to like about these things. People's expansion of horizons, that freedom to be able to travel, really uh, changed their outlook on themselves within as well as the, the world around them. Speaking about traversing the landscape, another development that we could say had a dramatic consequence for medieval society was an increase in travel speed. Why was this so influential? Right, OK, this is one of my special subjects, and uh, I don't think many people have, well, I don't think anybody's ever really noticed how much faster you could travel in 1600 than you could in 1000. We'll come back to this whole point about technology. Because people think technology has changed, they think that because the technology of 1600 was pretty much that of 1000, that people couldn't travel any faster in 1600 than they could in 1000. 
Well, that's wrong. The difficulties of travelling in the 11th century were considerable. But then if you look at how fast people really could travel when they were really under pressure, um, so when they had to get news of of a murder or an impending invasion or or something like this, and you look at the speeds they could achieve, you realise that by the end of the 16th century, people could travel three or four times faster over long distances than people in the early 11th century. Um, And roughly speaking, if you want a benchmark, a simple benchmark to compare, when Edward I died in uh, 1307 in in summer, on 7th of July, the news was brought back to to London at a speed of roughly 75 to 80 miles per day. Almost exactly 300 years later, in 1603, in March, when um, uh, Elizabeth I died, news of her death was taken into Scotland on the first day at 160 miles in one day, twice the speed for the same urgency of information across routes which probably weren't dissimilar. The roads were probably better by, by 1600, but there had been a doubling of the most urgent speeds. Now, if you think about the implications of that for a government, if you've got to wait let's say, 10 days for news of a rebellion somewhere to reach you, and then you've got to think about what to do about it, and then you've got to send a message back, and it's going to take 10 days to get back there. That's you know three weeks for the, the rebels to do whatever they want, wherever they are, and wreck whatever havoc. You can't allow that much time to pass. So you have to trust your local lords to do whatever they think is necessary. You've got to empower the localities. You've got to empower the, the local lords. If you can get that information far faster, if you can get it in five days and get your reply back in five days, well, you can rule much more directly. And you can tell the local lords what they should be doing if they haven't already done it. So the faster things go, the more centralised command can be. And if you extrapolate this, and if we step outside the Middle Ages just for a moment, and you realise how big the changes were in the 19th century because of technology, because of the speeding up of information. By 1900, we could have direct rule of Australia, whereas in 1800, you had to wait three months for the boat to get there. You can see how the, the centre becomes so much more important when you have speed speeding up. Now, going back to the Middle Ages, there's no point in the 11th century having a spy in Germany, because by the time that he's got his message to you, you've probably already heard about the invasion or whatever's going to happen. But if he can get the information to you at using a European relay at about 200 miles per day, you want to have spies everywhere. And that's why Walsingham has spies in Spain, Turkey, Germany, France, Italy, uh, and obviously throughout the British Isles, whereas there wouldn't have been any point in the 11th century. So it, it, it changes people's entire attitude to information, government and responsibility. On the note of governance, how different was where the seat of power was from the start of the Middle Ages to looking towards the end of the Middle Ages, did it shift at all? Well, it shifts. It shifts an awful lot at the start because power in England, certainly, uh, in the early Middle Ages, well, if we if we say the, the 11th century is the early Middle Ages, it is wherever the king was. I mean, there are some people who have a check on the, the king's authority. There are councillors who would advise him, but they're not going to control him. But then by the 13th century, you have Parliament. And by the end of the 13th century, you have parliamentary control over taxation, as Edward I acknowledged and Edward III uh, confirmed. If you want extraordinary taxation, have a war, you need to control the Parliament. And by the end of the 14th century, Parliament could get rid of the king, as we saw with both Edward II and Richard II. But Parliament was static by then. Parliament was 
Okay, there were a few parliaments in the late 14th century that weren't in, in Westminster, but otherwise government was in Westminster, and Westminster was the means by which people, and I mean those with a, a, a moderate level of income, your 40 shilling freeholders, could exercise what at the bottom level of society, what little political power they could, and everybody else higher than them in society could exercise their level of political authority too. So yes, from being rooted in one man, moving around in control of more or less a tribe, it became uh, an organisation, an establishment, rooted in one place, controlling defined limits. Now, moving from the sort of top of society right down through society, you mentioned earlier about people's personal liberties and freedom. Now, I think often we think of the medieval period as very feudalistic. How did people's individual liberties shift? If I could get one message across from this book to people in society in general is this transition of liberty and this sense of liberty... I mean, I start off the book by uh, quoting um, Yuval Noah Harari's point about uh, mobile phones. You know, the, if somebody from the year 1000 had fallen asleep and woken up in 1492 to hear Columbus setting sail, he wouldn't have noticed that much change, said Harari. I disagree, obviously. But then if he'd fallen asleep again and woke up in the modern world and woken up to a mobile phone going off, he wouldn't know whether he was in heaven or hell. Now, I, I think this is a very neat thing, but I think it's totally misleading because the Middle Ages, for one thing in particular, gives us a sense of liberty. For England, because we've got Doomsday Book, that fantastic resource, which isn't paralleled anywhere else in Europe, we can actually be quite specific about this. And across England as a whole, about 10% of the population was enslaved. That meant they could, uh, they were the, the property, they could be bought and sold in slave markets. Groups of men could buy female slaves for sex and then just trade them on if they wanted to. You can also have your slaves kill each other legally. So if somebody wants to have their uh, slave put to death, just has to get his other slaves to do it. Stoning in the case of men, um, drowning in the case of women. There are some parts where slaves aren't allowed to eat except when they're fed, like animals. So they can only eat when they are given food. So there's all these restrictions on the individual. And if you're not a slave, if you're not one of the 10% who are enslaved across the country, and you're one of the 75% who is a serf on the land, unfree, then you just have to do what your lord requires you to do on the land. And that is generally give up a fair amount of your working time to work for him to produce the food that he will need to feed his household. For that, you also get some land of your own, which you can then uh, produce your own food on. But it's a struggle to get by, and it's a struggle to survive. And you haven't got the choice of where you want to go. You have to work the land. You haven't got the choice of who you want to marry. It has to be somebody from the, the same manor or somebody who is in that lord's lordship, so he's not going to lose out. You really have not got the liberties that people take for granted. Now, I would put it to you that no one would give up their liberty for a mobile phone. I suppose where I differ from a lot of historians is, for me, the history is a means to an end. The history, I'm not really interested in the past for the sake of the past. I'm interested in the understanding the past to understand how life can be different, how life can be different in other times. And in therefore, that history in many ways is a means to understanding what life is, not just what happened in the 14th century, 13th century. Slavery could come back. You know, the, the, we, we have seen a situation in the world where people take desperate measures to feed their families. And we think 
in our democratic world, which is largely urban, that slavery must be the most iniquitous thing ever. And in terms of human relations, I agree it is. But it's not as bad as things can get because people would rather sell themselves sometimes into slavery or their children into slavery than starve or allow them to starve. So we have to remember that these situations, which are very thought-provoking, aren't just in the past. Just like the sense that war can be seen in a positive way is not just in the past. We've all had a wake-up recently over that. So in many ways, the history I'm talking about, and this book more than, yeah, probably more than any other I've written, even the Time Traveller's Guides, is about making people think about their place in time and that understanding what it is to be alive at any time and, frankly, how lucky we are to be alive in the 21st century rather than having to tackle the social inequities of the, the pre-industrial period, the starvation, the diseases of the 14th to the 17th centuries. Um, that's right, the diseases of most of the centuries. I wouldn't particularly like to have got um, smallpox or syphilis or any of those other nasty diseases. So, yes, it, it is a philosophical and existential inquiry if we are seriously going to throw ourselves into understanding what the past means. This really brings me on to another theme almost about people's self-awareness in the past. Would you mind telling us a little bit about how people in the Middle Ages understood themselves and how they saw themselves? When I lecture about this, I, I start off with a very simple point in that you are different from your early medieval ancestors in one very important respect. You know what you look like and they didn't. They haven't got a mirror to, to look in to see what they look like. Now, that is in many ways a simplification because those at the very top of society probably had mirrors from the early 12th century onwards. The, the lower ranks in society, probably from the 15th or the latest, the early 16th century onwards. So it's, it's different depending on which ancestor you're looking at in the past. But that awareness of what yourself is is a really thought-provoking starting point. Because if you were to ask a peasant in, say, I don't know, 1250, to draw a picture of himself, and he's never seen himself except in a muddy puddle, so he doesn't actually know what he looks like, he wouldn't do what we would do and try and you know, draw a childlike picture of a face and uh, identity. We automatically think in terms of that mirror image as being part of our identity. Whereas somebody before they had a mirror would not have done that. They, they would have thought of themselves as what they did. Um, a blacksmith might have thought of himself re represented by his anvil or Somebody who was uh, an illiterate squire might have thought of himself represented by his coat of arms. The, there's all sorts of different speculative ways we can see people would understand themselves. But the truth of the matter is they wouldn't have had a sense of self because that, what I'm talking about, wouldn't have occurred to them and no one would have ever asked them. There were no diaries in the early Middle Ages. There were no autobiographies apart from one or two extreme examples, such as the one by Peter Abelard, but he's not like most people. So there isn't that sense of self amongst the vast majority of people. So without that, you have to start to reconstruct what is it that makes a sense of self. Is it just the mirror? And no, it's not in many ways. It's the, the, the decisions we make that form us as individuals. It's that sense of what other people think of you. And here we can start to map out in the past how, how society forced individuals to think about themselves. Now, in the 1140s, 
uh, theologians came up with and defined more accurately and then spread the doctrine of purgatory. The doctrine of purgatory says you don't go straight to heaven or straight to hell, that most people will go to a holding bay, you know, purgatory, where they will spend a long time waiting for enough prayers to be said for their souls so they can enter the kingdom of heaven. It was a very good way for the church to maximise the resources being produced in in the 12th century. But just think about that for a moment. If you were angry and we can have lots of legal records and similar to, to know that medieval people would launch out violently when they got angry. Well, you would perhaps think about yourself differently if you knew you were going to be judged for it. Moreover, if you knew that people were going to have to pray for your soul to enter the kingdom of heaven after you died, then you would also think that how are they going to think about me when I'm no longer here? Until the 40s, you've only got to deal with people in day-to-day life, you know, whether they hate you, whether they, you know, you, 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 I don't know, trodden their toes or something or other. But after the 1140s, you're going to have to have that consideration about what they think of you when you're no longer here, a sense of self which is independent of your physical existence. And I think that, which you can also see reflected in the, the, the behavioural books written by aristocrats about how you should behave, is indicative of a growing sense of self. I mean, it goes without saying that what we're trying to do here is some of the most difficult form of, one of the most difficult forms of history you could possibly imagine, because you're trying to uncover something that was never written down at the time. But I think you can start to analyse how social changes made people more self-aware, increasingly so, and the choice of how you decorate yourself and adorn yourself, uh, as that increased over the post-13th century period, how that ended up with such an acute sense of self that people did start writing diaries and autobiographies by the end of the 16th century. Another point I really wanted to ask you about is we so often think of the medieval period as being associated with conflict, the Hundred Years' War, the Barons' Wars, the Crusades, the War of the Roses, particularly in the UK. But was the entirety of medieval society as warlike as we might think? It depends what you mean by warlike. I mean, it's a very interesting question, the word warlike. If you mean having a positive view of what war is and what war represents, then society has a large body of people who have a very positive view of war and enjoy what it represents all the way through until the advent of guns and the reduction of the role of the brave individual at the end of the 15th century, beginning of the 16th century, um, when obviously you have to take kings away from battlefields, you have to take the nobles away from battlefields. It's just too dangerous with bullets and cannonballs flying around. That's what really destroys that positive aspect towards aristocratic warfare. And it's not just the UK. I mean, you go across Germany, you go across Italy, um, your condottieri, etc. People right across uh, Europe, if they're high status, have a very positive view of war throughout the period until the guns come along. If you find warlike, you mean they are attuned to defend themselves and their communities. Well, that changes much more. I mean, if we think in terms of the aristocracy, they are there for war, they are those who fight, they are they have responsibilities and those carry through till guns. But for your peasant defending his community, In the the 11th century, he had to be prepared for war at all times because violence was just 
everywhere and could be everywhere. Your Viking fleet might arrive round the coast at any time. Your neighbouring count might decide at a whim to go to war with the count who's in charge of your land and then trample across all your land, and etc. So you have to be aware of the risk of violence at all times. But that diminishes as countries establish uh, or, or governments establish their regions of responsibility and the laws that are going to apply within those regions. So that tribal free-for-all, fearing-all, warlikeness in the sense that you've got to be prepared for war at all times, does change as law and order are imposed upon society. Now, that's noticeable uh, at times like the end of the 13th century when law and order started to collapse again. When you look around the moated sites of England, you realise that how many of them date from the reign of Edward I and Edward II when law and order really uh, collapsed as the medieval warm period led to food shortages and cattle moraines and bad harvests just made about 600,000 people basically starved to death. So people did fight, and out of that sense of pressure, people then had to start to defend their communities once more. And the longbow, the massed longbow, is one of the results of that that social pressure at the end of the 13th century and beginning of the 14th century. But then, after the Black Death, you see an easing of that again, that people are much less warlike in the sense that they don't necessarily feel they've got to defend their, their home uh, manor at all times. You know, but the third brought in the rules that you have to practice at the longbows, at the butts, uh, every week. But by the 15th century, people simply aren't doing it, not the numbers that Edward III would have wanted anyway. So there is this greater prosperity, greater sense that law and order will prevail, greater sense that you can rely on the justices of the peace and the sheriff to keep the peace um, by the end of the Middle Ages, so that the people who are living on the edge of war all the time, and reluctantly so, I would suggest, in most people's cases, were no longer as warlike, if that's what you mean by that word, uh, by the end of the Middle Ages. But it's a very different arc of going from war all the time to the expectation of peace from those at the top of society who had the expectation of peace almost thrust upon them by the fact that war had now got so dangerous they were no longer able to play a a responsible role or heroic role in it. In just this short time, we've spoken about so many changes that have taken place over this period. Why do you think acknowledging these changes and the fact that we probably have quite a few preconceptions of the period, why does acknowledging these matter? If we really want to understand ourselves, we've got to understand why we are like we are. And we are all the products of thousands of years of history. It's not just this period, obviously. But we blinker ourselves by just looking at the technological ages. And I've got to say, with writing this book, I had great fun writing this book. It's gone through a load of transformations. And uh, my editor was wonderful, Jörg. Bless him. That's why it's dedicated to him. He would edit everything. And I got to the end of the book and he just didn't make any comment on the envoy at the end. All my books have an envoy, a farewell to the reader. And he didn't make any comment. And he just wrote in the margins, we will talk about this when you're back from France, because I was just about to go to France. And I thought, oh, I know what that means. That's that's very polite Jörg speak for you need to rewrite this, Ian. And so I just thought about this my entire time away in France. And When I was in Le Mans Cathedral looking around, I just had this epiphany when looking at the incredible sophistication of the the, the choir of Le Mans Cathedral and realising that you do not get to put astronauts on the moon 
without first building arches 100 feet high, without building so gracefully, without bringing people together, without having a a shared um, sense of purpose. We could not have gone from a warrior society where everybody's fighting each other in a tribal way to a a modern, peaceful, economic democracy or participatory government without first building arches as high as you can imagine and and gracefully in this this common pursuit. We wouldn't understand ourselves if it hadn't been for all these reflections, uh, uh, the mirror, the purgatory, whatever it is, uh, of the Middle Ages. We are, in many ways, the products of the Middle ages in what we are. What we do and how fast we do it and how effectively we do it may well be down to technology. But when we say Shakespeare speaks for us, just just think, Shakespeare knew nothing about technology. Absolutely nothing. Now, so when he speaks for us, he speaks about what we are in our medieval selves. And everything since then, the technology that we uh, might be so obsessed by, is just an add-on. So if you think Shakespeare has anything to say to you, that's your medieval ancestors speaking to you. As a final question to you, when thinking of the expansion of these medieval horizons, what questions do you think we and our listeners should be asking? What questions should we pose ourselves? Like all all the history I write, it is about understanding our place in time. And I think if you look at it objectively as distant and violent and over there, we don't need to worry about it, then I think you're misunderstanding an important part of what it is to be human, because they are just a few generations ago, and there's no reason why somebody born today who'd been brought up in that society wouldn't have to face and overcome all the challenges that they did, and there's no reason why they shouldn't be in our shoes. I think we misunderstand what humanity is if we look at the past and think it's never going to return. And I think it is important for us to understand the the extremes of society and extremes of humanity, whether it be the cruelty or the extraordinary abilities, how we survive despite the most extraordinary adversities. I mean, having to cope with the Black Death must have been a psychological nightmare as well as an ordeal for those who had to live through it physically. So I, I think we learn an awful lot about what we are capable of and what humanity in its widest sense is when we look at this bigger picture. You don't get it from looking at the last 200 years. You get a much better picture from looking at the last 1,000. That was Ian Mortimer, historian and author of Medieval Horizons, Why the Middle Ages Matter. His book is available now, published by Vintage. You can also read a feature that Ian wrote all about this age of transformation in the February issue of BBC History magazine. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. Listener.